electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All righty, Carl, welcome uh, to the Halftime Report. I'm Tyler Matheson in for Scott Wapner today. And front and center today, this hour, we are close to closing the books on the first half, so we're looking ahead to the second half and where you should put your money to work now. And joining me for the hour today are Tiffany McGee, CEO and CIO at Pivotal Advisors, Joe Terranova, Steve Weiss, Rob Seachin, co-founder and managing partner of New Edge Capital. He's not only a good guy, a great money manager, but he has one of the more entertaining Instagram feeds you're ever going to see. Let's check the markets, folks. The S&P 500, NASDAQ, NASDAQ 100. All at new record highs, plus tech and healthcare also in record territory. Let's start with tech and the growth stocks. Joe, why don't I just kick it off with you? Why has tech turned around uh, the way it has over the past week or so, or maybe longer? Tyler, good to Tyler, good to see you this afternoon. Well, you've seen the return of mega cap technology over the last four weeks, and it's really because we're seeing a pullback in yields. And that's been the story, Tyler. So uh, a lot of positioning and rotating between different styles and strategies. And I think if you're doing that, it might be somewhat frustrating. Tyler, so far year to date, S&P value is up 14.7%. S&P growth is up 13.3%. So while everyone tries to struggle and debate between growth or value, maybe the right answer to that question is yes. Is yeah, Rob, tell, tell me why. Just explain in sort of freshman uh, economics uh, terms why technology stocks, why growth stocks are as sensitive as they are to rising bond yields. What, what, is, the, what is the connection there? It's all about discounting that, that longer-term growth at a higher interest rate, which impacts valuation. Tyler, so that's that's really the at its at its core. That's what it's about. But when I think about markets in, in tech, it's been a seesaw market. Um, two weeks ago, uh, def- defensives led. Last week, the cyclicals led, and then today again, the the defenses defensives are leading. In tech's really a new uh, a new defensive. Uh, when markets get tough, I think people run to the names they know. Um, it's impossible to predict right now, and it's hard to find attractive assets. Valuations are full across the board. And so with markets at all-time highs, um, I think we're vulnerable to surprises from a policy perspective. And then when you look at what might be the biggest surprise, it's really what the Fed does. And the Fed has told you that they're going to pivot a little bit and they're going to be a little more hawkish, but it's it's relative to how hawkish they need to be. If they if they have to come early, I think markets are not going to like that. So we are expecting some near term volatility and we have a barbelled approach where 
we have these quality growth names and you see that they've been they've been working episodically and certainly over the last few months the quality growth but we also have the cyclical bet on because we believe that the reopening of the economy is going to overpower all these risks we see earnings are good and uh when people re-engage we think they're only going to get better did i hear you say rob that tech is the new big tech is the new defensive or is a defensive quality familiar tech is the new defense like microsoft which all of you own tiffany tell me why you see such opportunity uh, and are so committed to microsoft uh, Microsoft and big tech. <laughs> I would kind of put everything into into that category um, and really kind of keeping, you know, Tyler in, 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 um, in line with this theme of kind of tech outperforming. But really, you know, the market hitting all time highs, uh, you know, last week um, and and just kind of continuing to push forward. And I'm I'm um, I'm definitely looking at that for, for for two reasons. And I think that you know, the current conditions have all the right stuff to support this, right? So the one thing is the valuation, valuations are getting slightly better. Um, kind of t- I'll take you back to kind of 2020 um, when we were all having these conversations about overvalued stocks. And so one thing that was going to be key to kind of continue the upward momentum of stocks coming into 2020 was that earnings would have to justify valuations to support that growth, especially with these with these tech stocks. And so now we're seeing kind of forward earnings increasing. So the expectation uh, for the S&P 500 is almost double what it was at the beginning of the year. We have earnings increasing at a faster pace than the market. So valuations are improving a bit. The other thing I'm looking at um, is corporate spreads, right? So which sometimes uh, can act as a leading indicator for stock prices. So, you know, certainly it can give us some idea of the overall uh, economic health. Um, and so last week, high yield bonds hit their, low, hit their lowest point since 2008. So, but there is one caveat, right? So I'm usually very bullish on tech and especially growth stocks. But the one caveat is uh, that we haven't had a correction close to, you know, uh, 10% since September of 2020. Um, so we're, we're a bit overdue. Um, I don't think that it's, it's a, um, a reason to, to uh, panic, but I just want investors to kind of keep that in mind um, and not get too excited, but you know, stay invested and look for those opportunities um, to, to buy the things that they have conviction around, especially those growth stocks on, mm-hmm. on the dips. Because I and do st- think that we're going to see some volatility. Steve, we haven't, had a, we haven't had a, a 5% correction in a good long time as well. It's been a very quiet, peaceful market here for the, for the first half of this year. You also like technology. You also like Microsoft. And you see uh, large cap tech as a fa- as, as, as set up for further gains. Explain your stance. Yeah, first of all, I want to address your, your first comment and advise you to expand your, your sampling base of Instagram accounts. Okay, I will. Moving on from that. <laughs> Me too. Moving on There's more no fun to be had elsewhere, I guess, is what they're saying. Rob. Yes, yes, yes. Sampling of one is never any good. Go ahead, Steve. But, but here's how I'm looking at the market in terms of technology. Not all technology is created equal, and, and Rob's Rob's tutorial on why rising interest rates are an issue for tech applies to the tech that use the DCF, discounted cash flow analysis, as a model. Not the other tech. Now, I've consistently made the case that reasonably priced technology names valued on the here and now, not some 5, 10, 20-year point in the future, are cheap. 
because they are growing, as Tiffany pointed out, much faster than the market. And that's Google, that's Facebook, that's um, that Skyworks, that's Qualcomm. Big discounts to the market in the latter two. So that's why you want to be there, and that's why rising rates should not have affected those stocks. But that's a function of, again, my next point, which is that, sure, we haven't had a 5% correction, or no less a 10% correction, of course, but that's on the indices. That's not on the underlying stocks mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. underlying sectors. The rotation we've seen in the market is like game musical chairs. It's happening every day. And those corrections have, in some case, been very violent. So it's a stock picker's market. That's the opportunity that you have to get into those misplaced stocks. Ignore the top line moves, the machinations there. Ignore the VIX, actually, which to me can either be a sign of complacency, if you're looking at where it's come from, or a sign of the fact that it can go lower, because historically, the average on the VIX is low double digits, not the 16 where we presently are. So overall, yes, there's always the opportunity or always the chance the market corrects 5%, 10%. It's never been a big deal, because since the beginning of time, the market's always higher. It's going to be a function of where we are later in the year as we get closer to the Fed cutting back on right. the liquidity they're offering. We're, the we're talking about tech we're, we're, with, a, with a sort of epicenter of big tech and Microsoft here. Uh, and we should point out that Jefferies has raised its price target to 310 on Microsoft from, from 290. I mean, y'all remember for, for more than a decade, Microsoft was dead money. But obviously, over the last five, 10 years, it's, it's come back and is now doing uh, running at all time highs for a variety of reasons, including uh, some new products that they're working on right now. Tiffany, let's we talked about correction. We haven't had one in a while. I'm going to ask you and the others if we do get a correction. This is a, sort of the end of the seasonally robust period for stocks. Typically, you go into the summer, there's a little bit of a doldrum. You get into September, October, sometimes those have been months where you've had corrections. What would you do? How would you change your portfolio? What would you buy if the market does correct 5 to 10 percent? What would you have your eye on? Yeah, so right now, you know, um, I'm, I'm looking at financials, right? So, you know, the banks, um, just one, one piece of news that I don't think a lot of people are talking about today is that the banks passed the Fed's uh, stress test. So this allows the Fed to kind of lift its restrictions on dividends and uh, share repurchases um, back, you know, uh, regarding uh, COVID-19. So this is really good for the financial sector. Um, and just, just a, a note, the financial sector is the highest performing sector um, this year, uh, just under um, energy, of course. So it's up about 24%. So banks are also disclosing their capital return plans today. So I think that we're going to, we can expect to see some dividend increases um, in the third quarter. So Mm -hmm. these are the things that I'd be buying now in anticipation. And in fact, we're going to talk a little bit more about that very point a little bit later on in the show. We're going to move on just quickly, but Joe, let me, let me round the base and, and ask you if there were a correction here over the next two months, what would you likely add to your stash? What's interesting, Tyler, is I'm going to give you the answer and the sentiment that I think everyone in the investment community shares. Uh, Ask anyone about a correction right now or what is their posture towards the market, and they say, we're cautious, we're fully invested, and on a correction, we are going to be aggressive buyers. So I, I, I think that's overall approach. I think that being invested in a very diversified manner when you're looking at all sectors is incredibly important. What's interesting, Tyler, is a lot of people just talk about that, 
But I think 2021 is a defining moment where, as you continue to see this rotation gravitating towards particular performance, it's best to just stay anchored. So just as an example, you know, Tiffany mentioned the performance year-to-date of financials, second to energy. Well, in the month of June, you had financials and industrials down 3%, materials are down 6%, and technology is up 6%. So sometimes the right position, the right trade is no trade. Stay anchored, ensure that you are broadly diversified, and on any correction, I would be doing that exact same thing. Last point on that, I think the United States and the outperformance in the United States so far year-to-date, that's something that should be illuminated in any pullback. I think you want assets that are continued to be domiciled here domestically. All right. I saw Rob uh, nodding earlier, and I, I keep thinking back to Microsoft. A few years ago, you thought that but Microsoft was so 1980s, 1990s, and you never thought. And it just goes to show you that the market will always surprise you one way or another. Uh, and individual companies can always surprise. Well, it was Apple a decade and a half ago. Nobody thought it would be what it is today. Uh, but let's move on now uh, with all the major averages up more than 10 percent so far this year. Uh, CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli will join us now with a look at the second half setup for stocks. What are you seeing, Mike? Well, Tyler, uh, the first thing to mention is that strong markets tend to remain strong. The trend tends to stay in place uh, when it's been strong through uh, halfway through the year. In fact, when the market's up at least 12 percent, the S&P halfway point of the year, it usually three quarters of the time. Uh, continues higher in the second half. Only one year since 1950 did you really surrender a big chunk of a 12% plus gain half year. That was 1987, of course. Now, against that, I think you have a lot of the cross currents you're already talking about. Incredibly strong uh, credit conditions and loose financial conditions and this gusher of earnings that just the estimates just keep going up. Been very hard to fight. However, uh, this notion that we're past the peak acceleration point, I think, has created a bit of indecisive leadership in the market. And you've had fewer stocks clicking to all-time highs on their own, even as the index itself does. Maybe that's one reason, uh, it, you know, indexing is the way to get you into the, uh, as little trouble as possible. But it does tell you that maybe there's a little bit of chop below the surface, not necessarily fatal just yet, but also... Are we due for some kind of a payback phase simply because not just this year, but the S&P is up 90 percent from the low in March of 2020. If you look at all these other launch points uh, off of a new bull market back to the strongest ever, 2009 and 1982, you always had a little bit of a, a period where you came back to the pack, chopped around, had a correction. We have not had that. In fact, it's massive divergence right now. And so I think you could say either the Fed's going to be much more tolerant this time, is not going to try to get ahead of the cycle. That's what they've tried to tell us anyway. We'll see if that changes. Or, in fact, it wasn't really anything like a typical recession. And the policy response has been so overwhelming that we can ride that liquidity for a little bit longer. So I think that's where uh, we're coming in. Also, final point on this sort of tech versus non-tech versus cyclicals. I don't think that the verdict is in about whether we have any kind of leadership transition going on. The cyclicals are still outperforming year to date as well as value. Uh, big cap tech acts as its own animal where it's just steady profits. It's not really technology, whereas speculative tech has had a comeback off of oversold levels. So I still think we're in a little bit of uh, kind of offsetting currents we have to navigate here. And I think being not too strident about which one is going to be the way from here might be uh, prudent. All right, Mike, stay with us as we uh, can t- uh, discuss this a little bit further. Steve, I know you have some thoughts on this, so why don't you pick up from where Mike left off? 
Yeah, and, and Mike echoed what I said before about the choppiness and the corrections under the surface. But, but I, I, I think that, w- that what I disagree with is that the move that we've had since the bottom, because that's not where you should be looking. Clearly, that was done by a one-time event, the pandemic. And I think where you have to look at is going back pre-pandemic. And that gives you a 20% move roughly on the S&P, which is not really out of line given where interest rates are. So to me, it's never where stocks have come from or where markets have come from. It's where conditions are and where conditions will be to drive where they're going to. So I wouldn't get too caught up in the move from the depths of the of the uh, uh, of COVID. Yeah, I know. I know Joe's a hockey and player and you're basically saying skate to where the puck is going, not to where it's been or, you th- or, you know, or where it is. Rob, jump in here with your thoughts. Mm-hmm. I know you said earlier you can you're, you're well positioned either way, barbellish uh, as you look ahead. Uh, Mike talked a little bit about how volatility has really come in. It has, but there's been a lot of vol below the surface. And it's that underwater vol that worries you because rip currents can kind of suck you in. And that's one of the things that, that we get concerned about and why we're on heightened alert for changes at the margin. Lewis Bacon always used to say, everything's going along smoothly. We all kind of have the same view as Joe talked about, but then something hits from the blue and knocks you into another atmosphere. The thing that could hit from the blue is obviously related to a massive change in policy mm-hmm. or a massive change in financial conditions where we get this where we get this overheating. And when I look at what's happened over just the last few weeks as a microcosm, you had two weeks ago, you had the Russell lead. So you had all this cyclical, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, defensive leadership. Last week, you had cyclical leadership. And then we're starting to see defensive leadership again. Uh, what that tells me is investors are trying to figure out what to do. And yet markets are sitting at all time highs. So if you've had some weight on both skis, so to speak, you've done very well at getting where you want to go. And I think that's the only recipe kind of thinking forward. I think alpha comes from uh, uh, other areas. You've got to make some surgical bets to get outsized returns. But I don't know if this is the environment to do that quite yet. I think prospectively it will be. Yeah. Well, you make the point there. Hey, Tyler, that, uh, can I just give a quick? Yeah, sure. I'm sorry. Can I give a quick follow? Please, please. I realized I was as I was talking. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. I realized as I was talking that I sounded uber bullish. I'm not uber bullish. What I'm saying is there's always a five or ten percent correction coming, but there's nothing to do about it. It's not worth selling in advance of, and when it happens, it's not worth selling. It's worth always keep some cash on hand to take advantage of it. Yeah. Okay, guys. And, and as, as both of both Rob and Joe, I believe, pointed out, uh, there's volatility beneath the surface. There may there, there have been 5% corrections in individual stocks, uh, and some of them very violent, I think was the adjective that uh, maybe maybe Joe, you used. Let's, uh, let's uh, switch back to financials now, which uh, Tiffany raised a moment ago. Uh, the investment committee closely watching bank stocks today in anticipation of potential dividend and buyback boosts following the Fed's stress test last week. Let's bring in Pete Najarian on the phone with a look at what the options market is saying about the banks. And Pete, I note that uh, uh, you own some of the banks outright in their shares and you have options mm-hmm. uh, on several others. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely, Tyler. So, yeah, presently I own shares in Wells Fargo. I own them in Capital One. I own them in Bank of America. But on top of that, 
I also own calls because of all the unusual option activity that we have been seeing. And by the way, this does go back to late October, very early November. And the XLF is a great example of what what really stood out for us, which has been 39 separate times, Tyler, we have had bullish option activity in the XLF. It's been absolutely gigantic paper consistently coming in there. I'll even give you a great example today. Now, the financials have pulled back slightly um, over the, the, the month of June, and you take a look, and all of a sudden I see 43,000 of the July 23rd expiring, 37 and a half calls. So in other words, right out of the money calls, giving themselves a full month for this to, to pan out, and they're a 30 cent option. So this is the kind of thing we've seen time and time again, and we've seen uh, a lot of option activity, not just in the U.S. banks, but bank. Of, you know, I, I'm I'm looking at Barclays, I'm looking at Deutsche Bank, I've got a Brazilian bank, ITUB, Bank of America, of course, which is low. You know, U.S. J.P. Morgan's another one. Those are all the different types of exposures that I've seen. But if anything stands out right now, in the month of June, the the amount of option paper that we have seen in Wells Fargo has just been absolutely off the charts. It seems like almost a daily basis. Matter of fact, just in the last week and a half or so, we had buyers of 10,000 of last week's expiring calls, but they turned out very nicely. We had two different separate times last a week and a half ago where we had those June 25 expiring calls being bought. But then it, it stretches even further. Last week, 15,000 of the August 45s, 8,500 of the July 46s, 17,000 of the July 46s. So it gives you sort of the sense of where the big option paper has been flowing. And it's been coming back into the banks very rapidly on this pullback. So I, of course, am trying to position myself as much as I can possibly into that type of thing. And whether or not they're buybacks or dividends, I know Kevin O'Leary really does uh, lean towards the dividends because of a lot of different reasons. Makes some sense to me. But in either case, it is very, very bullish, I think, for the banks going forward. Bullish for the banks. Joe, you're in. uh, Thanks, Pete. And and stay on with us here. Uh, Joe, you're in Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. But you think the buybacks uh, and the capital returns are already priced into these shares. And I'll turn to Tiffany and get your thoughts because you you came into this area first uh, this afternoon. Go ahead, Joe. I, I do. I do suspect that they are uh, priced in, but but I also suspect uh, that that Pete could be onto something here with a lot of the uh, traditional money center banks like a Wells Fargo, a J.P. Morgan. I'll throw in U.S.B. as well. Uh, these are the franchises that, on the other side here uh, of of receiving these results, uh, could see a, a very strong <coughs> positive lift. Because there has been such a negative headwind that's been emanating from the flattening of the yield curve and from rates. So I agree with Pete on that. I do have a question with Pete in terms of some of the more capital market uh, financial institutions like I own a Morgan Stanley or a Goldman Sachs. The expectation, and Tyler, we've got earnings coming here in just a couple of weeks. You listened to Jamie Dimon a couple of weeks ago. He talked about a very poor trading environment. Pete, are you seeing anything in the capital marketplace to reflect some of the negative sentiment surrounding uh, the trading revenue expectations that are not very positive right now? Yeah, that sounds uh, almost crazy for me, quite honestly, Joe, to be honest with you. I mean, what we have seen has been a record year again for the derivatives markets, at least. And so the trading involved in that that specific area, and I know there's much more to trading than just that, 
But when you look at the derivatives markets, Joe, and you and I talk about this kind of thing when we're talking on the phone or whatever, the volumes are absolutely extraordinary. We traded 40 million-plus contracts again yesterday. A couple of years ago, it would be a monster day to trade 20 million contracts, a monster day. And now here we are on a consistent basis trading anywhere between 35 million and 50 million contracts per day. So from what I am seeing, the trading, at least by volume perspective, is absolutely still very explosive and on a record pace once again. All right, let's turn to Tiffany. And then uh, I know, Rob, you want to jump in on this. Uh, to speak specifically, Tiffany, to the possibility of, of a dividend, what they're going to say about their, their dividends and any <clears throat> stock buybacks, but also more broadly about the sector and why you think it represents opportunity. Yeah, so we, we own um, both, you know, Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan. You know, financials are stable in our client portfolios. We like Goldman and J.P. Um, because of their diversified revenue stream. So, uh, you know, I hope Pete is correct and Jamie Dimon is not correct regarding that. Um, but, you know, again, what we expect to see, uh, you know, today and, and, and really in um, – Going into the third quarter, as we now that the Fed's restrictions have been lifted, we're hoping that these banks increase their dividends. So um, that's a good thing for total return, right? So we buy stocks not just for for the increase in price, but also for the dividends. So so we definitely like that. Um, so and again, all it, looking at the sector in its totality, um, I disagree about uh, Wells Fargo. You know, we we don't own Wells Fargo, and that's primarily for an ESG reason. Um, and we're we've seen that. Um, Clearly, through 2020 in their in their in their stock price, um, they just have a lot of issues. But we really also like these smaller um, these smaller financial services companies, these smaller kind of like financial advisory companies that have uh, diversified revenue. So um, we're just looking at the whole sector and hoping that um, that the earnings season kicks off in a positive way for them. Rob, I mean, in my opinion, how can't you own financials? We've owned them all year. They're a tail hedge to rising interest rates. They're beneficiaries of this roaring 20s environment we're in. J.P. Morgan's in a, a holding of ours. It's one of the best diversified revenue streams in the banking sector. Really a big, large-cap macro bet. We own Jefferies. We own Evercore as a way to kind of play, uh, play the smaller side of this market. We also own XLF in our macro portfolios. I think this is one of the best ways to kind of hedge your portfolio against the prospects of rising rates, mm -hmm. which I think is one of the biggest risks out there. Yeah, and, and that, that's tied to, to inflation or, or a, a, a quickening economy? Well, it, it, it is tied, it, it is a, a little of both, I would say. Yeah. You know, from, from a reopening of the economy standpoint, we have a, our biggest bets in energy, our second mm -hmm. biggest bet in financials, third biggest is in quality growth. And, you know, I think these are the ways that you want to play it. You have to play outsized success, whether each, either outcome happens. And if you have that barbell approach, you're going to be successful. It's the middle that concerns me the most. So right. I would be a market buyer. I'd be a surgical buyer. And, you know, I like financials as part of doing that surgery. All right. So we got Tiffany saying diamond or Nigerian, diamond or Niger my money's on. <laughs> Nigerian. Pete, thank you very much for teeing it up for us. And uh, thanks, everybody, for participating. We'll be right back in a second. Uh, straight ahead, energy leading the sectors this year, up more than 40 percent. Who to funk? A bullish call out on one energy stock that's up 25 percent in a month. We will debate it next on our call of the day. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go, on the app. Halftime, back in two minutes.
Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back to Halftime, everybody. Analysts making some calls on some big names like NRG, Energy, Micron, FedEx. Why don't we start with NRG, where Goldman Sachs is adding the stock to its conviction buy list. Joe, you've got some energy ownership and you like this call from Goldman. Yes, I agree with this call, Tyler. This is a company with 3.7 million customers. They're in 20 states, two Canadian provinces. They've underperformed significantly relative to the S&P and the utility sector itself. A lot of that was on the February weather uh, incident in Texas. There's now been a recovery. And as Goldman Sachs rightly identifies, this is a company with a strong balance sheet, free cash flow generation, and the ability to buy back 25% of their outstanding shares. Now we are past the February incident. You've got the visibility that you need to go in. This is a great utility name. I like the mean reversion opportunity. Here. Rob, you like this one, too? Uh, well, I like the energy sector. Mm-hmm. Energy companies are delivering growth and contribution to overall profit growth that far exceeds their current market cap. At just 3% of the S&P overall weighting in the energy sector is contributing 12% of EPS growth. I mean, it, 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 to me, it's still a must-own in the second half, despite the fact that it's up in the mid-40s year, year to date. Yeah. It's been one well, of our for well, you, you love it. It's loved you back this year, man. I mean, up 40 percent across the board. Again, kind of one of those things that, that where the market always has a surprise in store. Morgan Stanley reiterating Micron is overweight ahead of its earnings report on Wednesday. Steve, you own it and you bought more today. I did. I did. And I can't tell you I'm going to be there when they report the quarter because expectations are really ramping up. And typically, unless the company just has an unbelievable blowout, the stock will probably settle back. But I will keep a core position uh, in the stock for sure. All right, let's move on to FedEx, where Deutsche Bank has raised the price target to 375 from 318. They mm-hmm. Shares, of course, sold off last week following the earnings report and what was a sort of a lackluster call. The analyst there at the Deutsche says there's a lot to like. Tiffany, you own FedEx. I, that's one of those ones where I say, how can you not like FedEx? I mean, it's just the, the right. monster in this category. It is. And, you know, it's really it's, it's not just a logistics play for us. I mean, it really is an extension um, of our e-commerce play. And so, you know, we typically don't pay attention to 
analyst price targets, but we do look at the direction of the call. And I definitely you know, uh, agree with this call. The stock is up almost uh, 125% year to date. Uh, and I, I do believe it has the capacity to go higher. So that's a little blip. It's, 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 it's fine. Um, lackluster, I'll take because we're long-term investors. We're, we're holding this for, uh, we've had this in our portfolio for, for, for over, I think, um, you know, six, seven years. So um, we're, we're sticking with it. All right, Tiffany, thank you very much. Let's get to some headlines. And Rahel Solomon has them. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Tyler. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. Moments ago, the mayor of Miami-Dade announcing the latest on rescue efforts at the site of the collapsed condo building in Surfside. This morning, we did recover another body. That brings the count to 10. The total number of those accounted for is now 135, and the total unaccounted, 151. And tonight on the news, live team coverage from Florida and an interview with the Florida Fire Marshal who oversees the state's search and rescue teams. Tropical storm warnings have been issued for parts of the South Carolina coast. A weather system off the coast of Georgia and South Carolina is expected to strengthen into a tropical storm before it makes landfall. And in London, take a look at this video, a fire sending big clouds of black smoke over the middle of the city. About 100 firefighters responded to the fire, which does now appear to be under control. Police say the incident at this point, Tyler, does not appear to be terror-related. And despite, despite that and the explosion that folks there said that they heard, only one minor injury reported so far. Wow, that is a fortunate one. Look at the black smoke uh, in London. Rahel, thank you. Uh, up next, the big ETFs to watch today. Halftime returns right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. Can an ETF be a platform for climate change? Let's find out from Jennifer Grancio. She's the CEO of Engine Number no. 1. Just launched the Engine Number no. 1 Transform 500 ETF, the symbol VOTE, V-O-T-E. Earlier this month, Engine Number no. 1 came out of nowhere and won three Exxon mobile board seats after a six-month proxy fight. The company says Exxon needs to significantly reduce emissions and move toward a cleaner energy strategy. Jennifer, you on the vote. You got three board members on uh, Exxon. Now you have an ETF that buys shares in companies you're going to use in upcoming proxy fights. What is your next target and what are you going to be seeking to accomplish next? Um, Bob, thank you. So we've just won this landmark uh, on Exxon, and there's a lot of work ahead on that one. Um, and for now, we're very focused on engine number one's boat ETF. So we started engine number one um, thinking that capitalism has gotten, frankly, too short term, and we're going to work and help 
investors, be activists and active owners in companies, and also help companies understand how their impacts relate to their long-term financial value. Um, so what's ahead for us right now is working with anybody from biggest institutional investors in the world to millennials and personal investors on the vote ETF, where we'll be very active on voting shares in all these companies um, and working with them to help them take impacts they have today and see how they can manage their businesses towards long-term value. Well, speaking of the biggest institutional investors in the world, that's who you got on your side. Your campaign with Exxon was successful because you enlisted the help of Exxon's biggest shareholders, including BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street. How confident are you that they will go along with other proposals down the road? Do you believe that you now have a solid climate change voting block, so to speak? Well, I think you have to ask those companies how they'll vote in the future. Uh, but we've built our business where we can be the tip of the spear. And I think Exxon's a good example of that. If there's a company that can do something different to manage the transformation of their industry, and we can help that company think about how they deal with impacts today, be they social or climate and environmental, in a way that affects long-term value, we're a purpose-built firm to do this. Um, and so I think we will be obviously more successful when other big institutional investors come with us. But I think we, we have a business that can be the tip of the spear on these things. And so we look forward to um, leading into this more activist, more active owner space. Thank you, Jennifer. And much more with Jennifer and Engine number one strategy for getting corporate America to act on climate change, human capital, other ESG proposals. It's coming up on ETF Edge. She'll be joined by Arnie Nowak from DWS. He runs two of the largest ESG ETFs out there. Join us, etfedge.cnbc.com, 1.10 p.m. Eastern Time. Halftime Reports returns right after this. Welcome back, everybody. The Investment Kip Committee ready to answer your questions. And Tiffany, you get the first one. Jay in Florida writes, I want to buy either Square, Tesla or Twitter. Which of the three would you buy currently or would you wait and hold until any of them dip? What do you say, Tiff? Yeah, so Square and Twitter, I would wait and, and hold um, and buy on the dip. I own all three, and I love them for different reasons. I have conviction around them. Um, Square and Twitter, I do believe, there's, you know, that, that of course, we're going to see some increased volatility. So those are good ones to buy on the dip. Um, they're crushing numbers. Um, but then... Tesla, you have that crazy Elon Musk factor. They created and owned the electric, the, the luxury EV space. Um, I would say I would love to buy this at a cheaper price, but it's just so hard to call to call that dip on Tesla. Even um, you know today with the news of of that kind of soft recall, it's it's almost seems bulletproof. So if you love Tesla, just go ahead and, and, and buy it. Just go ahead and get in for the long term. Let's go to Greg in Chicago, who writes that Generac is about twenty two percent of his portfolio. It's currently my largest holding, he says. I think the company has great potential over the next five to ten years. But when does a single stock become too much of a uh, of a throw a portfolio and how too much? And when does it throw a, a portfolio out of balance? Joe, that one's for you. That's a big hunk. Twenty two percent. Well, woof, Tyler, fortunately for Greg, Generac is trading at an all time high. So he's got the ability to pivot at a nice valuation here. But Greg, you're going to need to pivot. You're going to cut that uh, at least in half. I want you to get down below to 10% immediately. Doesn't mean I don't believe in the company. This is a company that is offering a solution 
to the instability in terms of the power grid, and it's also providing a secondary uh, storage capacity as we electrify vehicles. So residences are going to have power generation backup. It's going to be provided by companies like Generac. They're also on the commercial industrial side. But, Greg, let's get that back to a more reasonable portfolio, is, un- holding rather, is, below 10%. Is 10% or below basically a benchmark for you? It's not, not just on Generac, but generally speaking, you wouldn't want one security to be more than 10% of your portfolio. Is that, do I interpret you correctly? That, that, that's correct, Tyler, but I'll, I'll share this with you. Where we are in the equity valuation uh, for all the indexes, I actually believe that an equal weighted strategy happens to be the right one. And the S&P equal weight is outperforming the S&P total return year to date. So I like an equal weight strategy. But if you're going to abandon that, I don't want to go below uh, above rather 9 percent. All righty, Rob, here's one for you. Anthony in New Jersey, where there are folks, a lot of Anthony's uh, with a long term view. He says there are names where I feel like I can take profits And in buyback or trim, is this a good strategy for someone managing retirement money or is the buy and hold strategy the play to follow? What do you say, Rob? Well, well, concentration is the key to building big fortunes. Diversification is the key to to keeping them. Uh, If you're in the wealth building phase, you know, as long as you can trust, as Ronald Reagan said, and verify that the thesis is intact, I don't mind holding a large position. We've done that with Microsoft, while Amazon, we've trimmed a bit. So I I think there's a little bit of room for both as long as the thesis still holds. And he seems to be saying there he wouldn't mind selling and then buying back. You just got to be wary of the wash sale rule, right? Not not with not in a retirement. Uh, oh, not in a retirement portfolio. You don't have to because it's a, it's a that's what he that's what he was talking about. And successful investors trade around their positions all the time. It happens to be much more effective in a retirement account because there's less friction cost to doing so. OK, great. Thank you for correcting me on that, uh, Rob. Shares of Intellia Therapeutics soaring after a positive trial of its gene editing treatment. It's also a big win. For Kathy Wood, her ARC management is the biggest shareholder in Intellia. The trade is next on Halftime. Stay with us. We'll all be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Intellia Therapeutics shares soaring after positive uh, results from uh, in a clinical trial of an experimental gene editing treatment. Intellia working with Regeneron on the development of this uh, advancement. Other gene editing stocks also rising on the new it's news it's a day for the gene editors the arc genomic revolution etf is up as crispr intellia editas they are all held in that fund this is a day for the gene editors what do you say here uh steve weiss uh, this is a small study it, it's a small study number one number two the medical community is very uncertain about gene editing and there have been research papers that have shown that they possibly can cause cancer when you edit a gene editing a gene is changing the chemistry of the body uh, now what i like in this play is moderna since the jury's still out on gene editing i'll tell you why i like moderna moderna's had a partnership with vertex in gene editing and their contract with their supplier for their mrna work is also one that supplies to gene editing companies so why not take advantage of 
everything going on that's modern in healthcare and make it Moderna. Moderna to me, with their technology, is like Apple, Amazon, pick one that was very early in their infancy that was regarded as a one product company, but yet was a technology platform. That's why I like Moderna. That's why I play for gene editing and for mRNA. And it's, it's a less, am I understanding you correct? It is a less pure play, but it has more sort of optionality in what it's doing. Is that fair? Yeah, point? that's exactly right. Not only does it have optionality, it's got 15 billion in cash, selling it a seven multiple with a pipeline that would blow any of those gene editing companies away. Their gene editing work is on cystic fibrosis. So that tells you how in the weeds they are in gene editing. Yeah. Plus, if you take a look at who they hired today, one of the top advertising execs in healthcare to come on as their brand manager, they will be the first and only brand company in healthcare. All right. Thanks very much, uh, Steve Weiss. We got our final trades next on halftime. We'll be right back. All right, let's wrap it up with some investment committee moves. Tiffany, you bought more Target and American Airlines. Why? Why now? Yeah, so so they're both staples for us. Um, And so, you know, Target is, besides, let's just actually get it straight, Tyler, Target. Number one, uh, uh, you know, they're they're benefit. They're benefiting from um, their competitors' store closings. Uh, they're also seeing a momentum in this buy online and pick up and pick up uh, in store. Uh, as a matter of fact, I don't think you need, even need to go into the store. They can bring it out to your car. Um, so, so, so we love it for those reasons. American Airlines. Um, you know, obviously, uh, it's it's definitely benefiting from the reopen. But this is a stock that we owned way before the pandemic um, and held it during the pandemic. But but now now we're we're, we're adding to more. We got we got, we got a new client, and so these are, are two staples that, that belong in their portfolio. Yeah, Target so. is one of those stores where I go in and I always invariably come out with more than I thought I was going to come out with. Let's go to it's final a black trade. Black hole for your money. Yeah, <laughs> Joe. Yeah, final trade with Joe. We'll start there. Tyler, I'm going to reiterate my position in Fortinet. It's a company focused on cybersecurity. It keeps moving higher and higher. Stay with it. Steve? XPO, they announced an offering today. Chairman selling, the company selling. This is a great sale. If we're a meme stock, stock could be up 50%. But it gets them close to investment grade. This is normal to be down like this. I would buy it aggressively. I did add to it today, and I think the stock price is higher after the deal gets done tonight. Rob, you're next. Your pick is is a get-out-and-have-fun play. Absolutely. As you know, there's a portfolio we run in partnership with Fundstrat. It's Live Nation, L-Y-V. Live Nation is the quintessential epicenter stock. If you, right. if you believe everybody's going to get out and get after it, I Live Nation. All right, we're going to wrap it right there. Tiffany, sorry we didn't get the last one from you. Thank you all for watching. That does it for Halftime. The Exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. 
With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.